Hey, everybody. I am back after my long weekend. Thanks to you all for letting me go to Tahoe. Had a great time. Uh, and now I'm here doing some solo news. Jason is speaking at Stanford today, like the badass that he is. Uh, but we have a great show and a bunch of interesting news. First, I break down the news that Google has invested $300 million in Anthropic, the AI startup that we talked about that's trying to be safer and more responsible than open AI. Uh, we also have a former Google executive building an AI search bot to compete with Google and Bing. That's called Neva. And I want you to tell me if you are ready to pay for private ad-free search because I am. Then we briefly talk about ShiftMed startup of the day, a massive $200 million raise to combat the nursing shortage in the United States, not using AI to my knowledge, by the way. So good for them. <laughs> Then we wrap up the show with a great Series A interview with Jessica Alderson of So Synced, which is a dating app that matches people based on their personality type. It's actually, I, you know, listen, I know it's better when we're both here, but it's still going to be a great show. Stick with me. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash startups acquire.com whether you want to sell a solo project or a booming startup with hundreds of employees acquire.com has the tools experience and most importantly engage buyers to help you achieve your acquisition goals sign up for free at try.acquire.com slash twist and element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't that means lots of salt with no sugar. Get a free sample pack with any purchase at drinklmnt.com slash twist. All right, let's dive into our solo dolo news with a little generative AI update for you because it is in fact a day of the week in 2023. So you know we're going to be talking about generative AI again. Uh, Friday, the latest news is that on Friday, the Financial Times reported that Google is investing $300 million in Anthropic at a $3 billion valuation, giving Google a 10% stake in the company. Now, you remember, hopefully, last week we talked about Anthropic, which is a newly launched, very, very similar to OpenAI product that is full of messaging about building safer, more reliable AI systems. We had covered these reports that Anthropic was raising $300 million from an undisclosed investor. And so now there's this news that in fact, the investor is Google, which isn't too shocking considering that, you know, there aren't, I guess, that many companies with that kind of money to make that investment, but also that Google and Microsoft are now locked in a possibly existential race to get to and deploy generative AI soonest. There are, though, a couple of interesting things about this deal. Okay, so if we look back at Anthropic itself, remember that it was founded by Dario Amodi and a few other researchers that left OpenAI. And according to the Financial Times, they left because, quote, they were concerned that Microsoft's first investment in OpenAI would set it on a more commercial path and detract from its original focus on the safety of advanced AI. So, that gets kind of interesting because you wonder why then they would turn around and raise $300 million from Google, which is obviously a commercial enterprise. Um, according uh, to other reports, Anthropic is planning to develop an intelligent chatbot called Claude, which will rival OpenAI's ChatGPT. 
And I would argue it's always a good idea to give your chatbot a cute name. So Claude, cute, good one. It has not yet been released publicly. But here it's worth noting that Google is also reportedly working on its own chatbot called Apprentice Bard. So if Google is planning to use its own AI chatbot, it's unclear why they would invest in Anthropic in the first place. And this is where it gets even more interesting because the Financial Times notes that this investment is coming from Google's cloud division, not its venture arm, GV. And the question becomes, if you are, if you're a corporate venture capital arm, a lot of times you're investing strategically so that you can incorporate this technology into your parent company. In the case of Google, GV is actually not a very normal venture arm in that sense. They, they don't do investments in the same way. It's more, um, they call it balance sheet capital only. So they're investing, they're hoping to get a return. It is not necessarily about uh, helping out the parent company. So let's give a little background on this. Here's a 42 second clip of Jason talking to Sarah Cannon back in 2020. She's currently an investor at KOTU, who previously worked at Google's growth stage venture arm. And she's talking about this kind of distinction. Now, Capital G is the corporate investing arm that did, I believe, Uber. So they, Alphabet makes this very confusing. And then they have Google Ventures, which then became GV, which operates outside of Google with Google's money, but has independence. And Google, theoretically, Google's employees, business units don't know or, or get the information that's firewalled with the GV investments. So you know more about this probably than most people at Alphabet. Oh, okay. um, but so I, so that's right. We yeah. were balance sheet capital. Yeah. Um, and so we were independent. So we were not investing for strategic reasons. It was for uh, financial return, just like a Warburg Pincus or a KKR or a TPG would do. Okay. So that's what would have happened had this investment come from GV, the venture capital arm that spun out of Alphabet. But like we said, it seems like it came out of the cloud division, which makes it seem like it's more of a strategic investment of the kind that could eventually absorb uh, Anthropic in some way. But it gets kind of even weirder. It sounds like, according to the Financial Times, Google's relationship with Anthropic is limited to acting as the company's tech supplier, which again is totally different from the way that Microsoft and OpenAI's relationship works because Microsoft has been very upfront about how they intend to incorporate OpenAI features into its Azure cloud services, about how they intend to eventually incorporate some chat GPT capabilities into Bing. But in this case, it sounds like Google is making this $300 million investment, will provide cloud computing and hosting for Anthropic. So deal, you know, help it deal with costs related to compute. But that's it. Then continue to launch its own chatbot called Apprentice Bard and maybe in some way incubate this safer right? This again, we go back to this in theory, safer and more reliable and trustworthy AI systems. So it's a little unclear what Google hopes to get out of this. I have a hard time believing it's purely altruistic, but maybe they do have an interest for some reason in figuring out a safer backstop in case its AI goes off the rails. Maybe they're just like incubating Mothra in case they turn into Godzilla. Unclear. Um, but a reminder, though, that uh, Jason and Rachel covered Google's Q4 earnings on Friday and the cloud division was uh, a major bright spot. Revenue up 32% year over year. The segment cut its operating losses by 46% year over year and, of course, has been 
locked in sort of that three-way race with Microsoft Azure and AWS. All of this, though, as we talk a little bit about this investment, and we're just going to kind of keep putting a pin in this because it's sort of one of those conversations that keeps bubbling up. And I have learned in my uh, somewhat brief time here at This Week in Startups that when Jason keeps bringing up a topic, that probably means that there's a reason and it probably means it's a back channel from the poker table. And so this question of round tripping, the way that these investments are being made by these big corporate partners keeps coming up. So in this growing AI arms race between Microsoft and Google, you've got this situation where these companies are making these big investments in these in these AI companies, right? And they're saying, you can use our compute, which you will pay us for. And so they are getting revenue from their investment. And if you are watching this on YouTube right now, you see me making a circle because this is a practice called round tripping. According to accountingtools.com, it's uh, round tripping occurs when one company sells assets to another party in order to generate sales and then later buys back the assets. We know that in the case of Microsoft, they're going to reap a portion of OpenAI's profits when and if it becomes profitable until they get to the $10 billion that they initially invested. So. An example from accountingtools.com is that, let's say, a real estate company sells several condominiums to a related party for $4 million, and then they get to recognize this $4 million sale, and a year later, they buy those condos back for the same price. In these arrangements, uh, doing so generates sales not only for the original seller, but also for the related party when it sells the condominiums back. In these arrangements, There is minimal net long-term change in a firm's profits. In this scenario, the round-tripping would involve Microsoft getting that large percentage that I mentioned of OpenAI's profits while also being its largest customer. I'm pausing so you can digest that for a second. Friend of the pod, Bill Gurley, tweeted the following about this. Serious question for accounting Twitter. Now that there are two of these, When a company uses its balance sheet in a transaction that requires boomerang use of same dollars for their services, are they able to recognize said revenue? Couldn't you juice your own numbers writ large? As usual, the simple question with the most convoluted uh, potential answer, Matt Garrett responded and said, this is round tripping. I ran Salesforce Ventures for years. This was a big issue. We could not at Salesforce Ventures use venture dollars as quid pro quo, or even have the perception of this? If so, we could not recognize revenue up to the amount of the investment. We had safeguards to prevent this. Otherwise, he went on to tweet, as you point out, otherwise you are using cash on the balance artificially to generate revenue. Even if there was the perception of round tripping, he went on, and it was just coincidental, the accounting team would not recognize the revenue. So, The real question here is like a nerdy accounting question, but those are the questions on which everything always hinges. If Microsoft does not recognize this open AI relationship as revenue, then it's probably not round tripping, we think. (laughs) We might need an accountant on here, but what we do know is that this is like, again, a major back channel topic of conversation, especially as these big corporate investments keep happening into these AI products that rely on massive cloud compute services. So once you have Google and Microsoft doing this, you do have to ask the question, like, do these big AI 
companies then end up being a moneymaker and a customer. And what does that mean for the larger industry? TLDR, important people are talking about round tripping a lot. So we think you should probably pay attention and we'll just keep you updated. Listen, LinkedIn has 180 million senior level executives ready for you to tell them about your business solution. Let's talk about marketing to the C-suite and all these senior level executives. How are you going to meet those business to business folks? You're not going to meet them on some social network arguing about politics. No, you're going to meet those 180 million senior level executives on LinkedIn. LinkedIn ads is built specifically for B2B marketers. That's you. And here's the only stat you're ever going to need on why you have to market on LinkedIn. LinkedIn ads gives you direct access to, wait for it, almost 1 billion members. They're at 875 million members. And there's 10 million C-level executives in there as well. No other platform in the world can offer those kind of eyeballs, huh? And you can't slice and dice like that on other social networks or search engines. It's just not going to work. In fact, the audiences on LinkedIn have twice the buying power of the average web audience. And LinkedIn is also going to help you reach your audience in a respectful environment. It's business people talking about business. LinkedIn equals business. Business equals LinkedIn. We all know that. We use it every day. It's the greatest business social network in the world. So here's your call to action. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash thisweekinstartups to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash thisweekinstartups. Terms and conditions do apply. Next up in some other generative AI news, because once again, it's a day of the week in 2023. Uh, I'm a big fan of this one, though. This is a really interesting story. Neva, N-E-E-V-A, is a startup led by former Google executive Sridhar Ramaswamy, and it's building a paid subscription ad-free version of Google. So we've been talking about how ChatGPT should have Google on notice, clearly does have Google on notice, but that this starts to become the way that search should look, the way we would have all wanted search to look if advertising had not come in and mucked it all up. And if algorithms to feed you some sort of a, you know, personalized bubble, like a filter bubble um, had not come in to make your results slightly suspect because of targeted advertising. A different business model for search is kind of long overdue, but Google's had such a monopoly on search for so long and there was this assumption that nobody would pay for it that uh, we've never gotten it until potentially now. So Neva has come along. It is in fact paid search uh, and it's doing citations. So when you see the search results, you actually see little footnotes that lead back to the news stories uh, where this was reported. And they're charging $4.17 per month <laughs> for searching. That's the premium annual plan if you pay all at once. Uh, the premium monthly plan is 6 bucks a month. And then you just get these kind of super simple search results that are AI, gen AI fed. AI generated? Generative AI? I guess so. Neva, for background purposes, was founded back in 2019, launched this paid search project in 2021, and then according to PitchBook, has raised about $78 million to date and was most recently valued at $300 million in a March 2021 Series B led by Greylock. I want to like focus on that number for a minute, just side note, because $78 million actually isn't that much compared to what OpenAI 
and Anthropic are raising, although it's possible that Neva is more of a, a, you know, it's a delivery mechanism as opposed to a full, like, neural net AI engine on its own. Um, but Ramaswamy posted some tweets showing these sort of quick summaries of events with Neva. And one of them was, you know, the U.S. military shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon off the coast of South Carolina on Sunday. Footnote, with China expressing strong dissatisfaction over the incident. Second footnote, the balloon was initially spotted over Billings, Montana on Wednesday. Shout out to my aunt and uncle in Billings. Let me know if you saw it. And is believed to have traveled over Western Canada and Alaska. It's just a super straightforward bullet point result that gives you the information that you want. And I keep going back to Jason's kind of accidental, accidental tagline for all of this, which is why search when you can get answers. Now, the question remains as we look at products like this. My initial response to this is like, I would absolutely pay for this. I have every reason in the world to need fast unfiltered information i do not want to say i mean i already use DuckDuckGo because i don't want to sift through google's like 50 million the button or the bubble over here and the like the summary and the ads and the this and that and all these things i just want information without tracking so neva i believe also includes that sort of basic privacy um at least in the sense that you're they're not doing targeted advertising they have this monthly and annual plan and the free plan even offers limited ad-free searches, a limited number of devices on one account, and no premium passage, password manager or VPN. So a little bit less privacy. So this, again, this has like been the dream. Like, can I or would I be able to pay for search that doesn't track me and search that just gives me information? $6 a month? I'm a hard yes on this. But I do think there's still a reasonable question about whether people would pay for this. So um, to give you a sense of how massive the search market potentially is, in 2021, Google was handling about three and a half billion searches per day. That's over 100 billion searches per month. So imagine that Neva is able to grab, you know, $50 a year from even 1% of that. At this, few, at this moment, one of our producers is definitely doing that back of the envelope math because I'm not Jason and I can't do it that fast, but well, I'm going to like make it easy for you and say, that's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, and then, you know, Neva has just sort of burst onto the scene. Let's check out actually a 77 second clip with Neva CEO Shridhar Ramaswamy on CNBC's Tech Check from back in 2021. But this model, you're not doing any ads at all. No affiliate links either. So this is even more pure than DuckDuckGo. You're just going to charge consumers a monthly subscription fee. What convinces you that people are ready to subscribe to search? Neva is the world's first completely ads-free private subscription search engine. Now, all of us use search. We don't really think that much about it. But, and it's a giant business, $150 billion across the globe. But the fact of the matter is that what started as a way to get you and me great information has now become an enterprise where most of the energy is on advertisers. So Neva is super innovative here because we want to put you at the center of the service. By being a subscription service, we think we can create a much better experience for you, one that is more personalized, one that is deeply private because the model says we don't take money from anyone other than customers. Mm -hmm. um, and we are able to bring all of this together 
into this singular experience. And more, we also support publishers from early on because search engines are based on great content. Right. And so you're going to see lots of great content on Neva. It's all of these that we think will convince people that Neva is worth paying for. I mean, also, side note, when you look at the pricing plans on Neva.com, there's a little note at the bottom that says, choose premium and let's fight climate change together. And then there's a pop-up that says Neva will contribute 1% of our profits to fight climate change. And until they reach profitability, they'll contribute $5,000 a year to the Environment Defense Fund and 350.org. So like, you know, they're talking to me. I am privacy obsessed. I've been using DuckDuckGo for over a decade. And they're going to contribute to climate change. What I really want to know is, are you in? I'm obviously all in on this vision. I also think, though, as an interesting data point, it's really worth pointing out that Neva's CEO was at Google for almost 16 years. So he knows exactly what he's up against. He was, in the en- he was an engineering executive in Google's ads and commerce division for his last six years at the company. He's very familiar with the business model, the incentives, I think, that do potentially pervert search results. That's one of the things that people complain about a lot. And he knows exactly uh, what kind of money he's facing and probably has a sense that there is a business opportunity. I can tell you I'm like so hungry for this and I can't wait to get the sort of chat GPT version too, where it's just like, I just want the answer. And then the sources, I think, is really important. MyCore Acquire is a startup acquisition marketplace that helps you sell your business quickly and easily. And listen, the acquisition process was never described as quick or easy, but MyCore Acquire has changed that just like they changed their name from MicroAcquire and rebranded as Acquire.com. Yes, they want to show the world they can help any startup of any size get acquired. Acquire's mission has remained the same. Help founders achieve life-changing outcomes, build tools that make acquisitions easy, and foster a new generation of entrepreneurs. And the stats on Acquire speak for themselves. They've reported over $2.1 billion in combined revenue of all the startups that are listed on their marketplace, over $500 million in closed acquisition volume already, and over a 1,000 deals have closed. So it's the right place for you to sell your startup. And now you can sell anything from a solo project to a booming company with hundreds of employees. Acquire.com has the tools, experience, and most importantly, engaged buyers to help you achieve your acquisition goals. And if you're on the buy side, you can join over 120,000 other buyers who have skin in the game. Buyers can browse listings for free. And of course, it costs nothing to list or sell your business. If you're thinking about selling your startup or looking to acquire a business in 2023, sign up now for your free acquire.com account. Get more information at try.acquire.com slash twist. That's try.acquire.com slash twist. There's also Uh, a data angle here. So one of the things that Google has in general when it comes to search, and particularly to personalizing results, is a data advantage. They have a data advantage in terms of selling ads. And as we continue to talk about generative AI, you've heard Jason and I now many times, I think, mention the data problem, right? Fundamentally, AI doesn't work without data. And that data, you may or may not have permission to use it, it may or may not may or may not consist of a copyright or IP violation. And the quality of the data is directly correlated with the skill and the ability to learn of the AI. Garbage in, garbage out. We say it over and over and over. And so the data sets and the training data 
become truly fundamental. If you don't have good data on which to train your model, you are at a disadvantage in a fast growing arms race. And Jason has been saying for months now that the IP lawsuits are about to become a huge part of this. And I think even said last week that OpenAI could find itself in a situation because it's not being rolled out with citations where people sue to prevent their data from being included in the training sets. And so uh, Asridhar Ramaswamy had this 14 tweet thread (laughs) starting uh, over the weekend about how publishers need to beware. He said, your content is going to get sucked into AI bots pulling your work into their large language models. Your referral traffic will go down. And if you just side note, if you know anybody who works at a media company that relies on referrals, and I am talking about my home base where I grew up, CNET, for 13 years, I am intimately familiar with the situation where Google changes something in the algorithm to either punish or encourage certain behaviors or language or link uh, procedures within their articles. And all of a sudden, your traffic plummets. Like everybody in media knows that they are 100% at the mercy of Google and have been for like two decades. And it is a really abusive relationship. And so he's pointing out that instead of bothering to refer back to the original source, a lot of these engines, something like OpenAI, and he says, for example, if Google clones Neva, which we expect, then publishers are at risk because as search engines become answer engines, referral traffic will drop. This is an existential threat for publishers of news, publishers of recommendations, review sites, all kinds of publishers out there on the web. And he points out in this thread, it's happened before. Google featured snippets and uh, the, the featured snippets are the thing I was just complaining about, the little box that's like, here's the actual information that you want. Don't worry, we took care of it for you. That caused a massive drop in referral traffic on 10 to 20% of queries in the past, writes Sridhar. This is dangerous for publications unless they take control of their relationship which with their search overlords. There are three ways to do this, he says. One, don't get crawled, which we all know is virtually impossible. And then he says, unless publishers band together, unilateral disarmament is hard for a single publisher to achieve against a monopoly. Then he says, ask for payment for LLM inclusion. Again, tough against a monopoly. Neva, he says, is committed to pub revenue share. That is, they're going to implement a revenue share model with publishers as part of their rollout. And then he says, or three, publishers take ownership of the relationships with their users. With AI transforming the web, what does it look like for referral traffic from an aggregating answer bot Google to become sticky traffic that originates and stays on an app or website? So he gives the example of Adam D'Angelo and the Quora team uh, creating this vision where you're sort of where users can kind of use the best bots for their various information needs. And in fact, this is a really interesting, this harkens back to uh, my interview with Albert Wenger from USV. He talked about the idea that all of us should actually have the right to create and utilize our own bots, that we shouldn't necessarily have to use the bots that are given to us from any one of these companies. We should have agency over a bot that goes out and finds information on our behalf without us having to trade, for example, our data or our attention in terms of ads. It's a long thread. I'm not going to necessarily uh, read the whole thing, but I encourage you to check it out because I do think we are entering 
you know, we've talked a lot about the AI race. We've talked a lot about all the different ways that this is going to change information delivery and change our relationship with information. And there are just so many, many, many billions of dollars at stake here and an entire digital advertising universe and all of the publishers behind search. Like if you think about the way in which search did ultimately change everything. It became the entry point for the information age in which we live. All of that is about to be disrupted again. And it is a huge deal. Huge deal. All right, I'm just going to do one last mini update here, a startup of the week, if you will. ShiftMed is a company that has just raised $200 million to address and sort of digitize the massive nursing shortage that's going on in the United States right now. The U.S. unemployment rate is, of course, uh, 3.4%. Um, all of the increase, many, a huge increase, 20% of the increase in jobs that were reported in uh, the latest jobs report in the United States involved education and healthcare. Nursing shortages have been this huge problem since before the pandemic. The Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates there will be over 200,000 RN openings each year through 2031. We do not have enough nurses. And that has led to all kinds of things. It has led to this sort of travel nurse situation where you can actually make like three to four to five times as much money if you become a travel nurse as opposed to staying with one hospital. That has led to that on top of the fact that nurses, although there is a huge shortage, are also underpaid and poorly treated. There have been strikes all over the United States. The pandemic uh, led to tons and tons of burnout. Obviously, travel nurses, by the way, side note, single travel nurse can earn up to $10,000 a week and can cause a cost a hospital as much as 10 times more than a regular staffed nurse. But meanwhile, a hospital might be paying this for a travel nurse while the other nurses are outside striking over their pay. It's absolutely bananas. The whole nursing situation in the United States is banana pants, hot mess, disaster. So ShiftMed just came in, and this is kind of maybe why you can imagine a company raising $200 million that's not on generative AI. Uh, they want to reduce operating costs for hospitals by 30 to 40%, essentially by kind of gigifying the healthcare industry. So uh, the app works by filling open shifts at hospitals or long-term care centers, assisted living communities. The company negotiates worker rates and then splits the difference with health systems and then also offers health facilities the option of white labeling the app so that then workers could use it to pick up shifts after hours so that maybe they can take advantage of any capacity that exists in the community without having to hire these travel nurses which is, of course, disrupting all of the economics of nursing within hospitals. Now, I don't want to understate how hard it is to deal with the healthcare industry in the United States. There are like unions, there are probably insurance rates to think about, there's sort of all of the hospital bureaucracy here. This is a very, very, very difficult industry, industry to disrupt, but it's probably one of the industries that needs it the absolute most. So as these labor shortages have grown uh, significantly, we've seen actually a lot of other job placement platforms raise capital to combat this kind of lack of healthcare worker. Incredible Health raised an $80 million Series B last August, valuing it at $1.65 billion. Gale Healthcare raised $60 million from FTB Capital last January. 
and Bemlo, a YC alum, raised a $3.3 million seed round backed by Y Combinator, Long Journey Ventures, and Uncommon Capital in July of 2022. It's almost like instant delivery services or, you know, gig work, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash for healthcare. And it kind of is one yet another example of where uh, an ancient industry cannot overhaul itself. And so startups want to come in and do it. And we'll see how the success works out. All right. We have we don't normally do this on this show. We don't do the like it's Valentine's Day. So we're going to do Valentine's Day content, but it accidentally happened. And it's absolutely delightful. I have an interview up next with the co founder of So Synced, Jessica Alderson. And So Synced and is a dating app that was built by Jessica and her sister Luella. And it matches people based on their personality types. It is not a Myers-Briggs test. Specifically, they did all of these research, all this research and sort of determined that personality types are a huge indicator of compatibility and created this, like Jason called it horoscopes for tech dudes. And I actually asked her, I was like, you know, we're in this point, this stage of like extreme self-examination and astrology is super back and this is kind of exactly that. We have this great conversation about which personalities use the make for the best matches and the surprising age group that is taking to So Synced. It's a great conversation uh, with Jessica Alderson. That's coming up right now. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio. 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. And Element has none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. And it's perfectly suited if you're keto, low-carb, or paleo. Element can help you prevent and eliminate headaches, muscle cramps, fatigue, and other common symptoms of electrolyte deficiency. Because when you sweat, you lose sodium. And when sodium is not replaced, it's common to experience those cramps and fatigue. Huh? When I'm out there skiing, I need to use Element. Element is used by everyone, from professional athletes to Navy SEALs to everyday people. You're going to love it. I love the chocolate salt flavor. So sweet, so savory. So here's your call to action. Element is offering Twist listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. Go try all eight flavors at drinklmnt.com slash twist. Element offers no question asked refunds, so you got nothing to lose. That's drinklmnt.com slash twist for a free sample pack with any purchase. Welcome to another interview in our Seed and Series A series. Hmm, I should come up with a better way to phrase that, but here we are. Today, I'm super excited to talk to Jessica Alderson, the co-founder and CEO of So Synced, which is a dating app designed to match compatible personality types, which is, I feel like a big promise. Like we've all been trying to do that, but you're taking a unique take in terms of how you're pulling it off. Welcome. And I can't wait to hear all about it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. All right. So tell me how this works. So you sign up to the app. The first part is kind of like a typical dating app. And then the big difference is we have a personality test and it's based on the 16 personality types model, um, which a lot of people probably know already because it's the most popular personality framework in the world. Um, and then, yeah, we essentially let you know your personality type 
Um, you get like a description, strengths, weaknesses. Um, it's, you know, hopefully quite fun. We have a very high completion rate. So I think people do enjoy it. Um, and it is actually pretty quick. It takes, you know, just a few minutes for most people, depending on, I guess, how well they know themselves. And then, yeah, you basically see uh, different profiles on the app. You see their personality types. And we have um, like a unique matching algorithm based on personality compatibility, um, which we yeah, have now refined the data. We started off with a kind of theory ourselves. And now it's based on a, a pretty big data set, which is yeah, pretty, pretty fun, really. So um, let's talk. Let's start a little bit on the with the personality test. It it is the or it's based on or it's very similar to the Meyer Myers Briggs test that people are familiar yeah, with. It's, it's kind of those letters. Yeah, not not officially a Myers Briggs test. Right. We're not associated with the Myers Briggs company. Um, so it's yeah, basically the the sixteen personality types framework is kind of how how we describe it. Um, but okay. yeah, it's like INTJ, ESFP. ENFP, those personality types. Got it. And then talk about the matching. Why, why, why that? I wonder, like, is, is, and also kind of, and I mean this as a compliment, how come nobody thought of that before? Like, this is something we're all so familiar with. We all do it for work. It's like a, yeah. a framework that we incorporate into lots of relationships, but not necessarily dating apps. Yes, and you're definitely not the first person to say, why hasn't this been done before? And we were really surprised. So my sister is my co-founder. Um, and when we were kind of talking about this idea, we Googled and we're like, why, why is no one doing this? It makes so much sense. It's such a popular personality test. People love it. It's used like, extensively in a kind of work environment. Um, and so... Yeah, basically, we chose that because um, I used to work in finance. I worked at Morgan Stanley for five years, um, worked in London for the majority of that time. And I dated someone who was Australian. And we ended up moving to Australia together after like a couple of years of dating, which was, yeah, incredible. Love Australia a lot. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so I got a transfer with Morgan Stanley, which is also amazing. Um, and yeah, was there for a year. And then unfortunately, the relationship didn't work out. And I was leaving my job at the same time. So these two natural ends happened. And I had been super into personality uh, types and personality tests, particularly the 16 personality types framework um, for a long time, but had mostly been using it in a work context. Um, and when these two natural ends happened, I was like, right, I'm just going to take a bit of time out, like backpack around the world, just you know, had been working super long hours in investment banking. And I was like, I'm just going to read about things I'm interested in. You know, it's like very lucky to be in that kind of position where I could do that, right? Like not everyone gets that opportunity. Um, so yeah, and because I'd had this breakup, I started applying personality types to like love, dating and relationships. And I spent like, yeah, I can't tell you how many hours kind of researching it, but it was, the trip ended up being a year. Um, and a lot of it was spent looking into personality type compatibility. You know, I met lots of people when I was traveling. Um, there, you know, spent a lot of time on Reddit. There are people posting all day, every day on, you know, like ENTP forums, ISFJ forums saying, you know, I'm dating this person and well, this personality type, this is why it's great. This is why we're having challenges. So there was a lot of information out there, I guess is my point. Yeah. And I just saw really strong correlations between which types were, I guess, 
more natural fits and relationships and which weren't. Um, and then I got back to London and I was telling my sister about this over some drinks in Soho. And um, yeah, we decided to, to go for it because, yeah, like you said, we were kind of wondering why this hasn't been done before. Yeah. Um, some of these, for people who are not familiar, like some of these are, are things we've been talking about a lot, I think, in society, like introversion, you know, I versus the introvert versus, versus extrovert has been coming up a lot. There's a lot more sort of awareness, I think, about the yeah. introverted personality and what that can mean. The, um, the other letters are S for sensing, I for intuition, T for thinking, F for feeling, J for judging, and P for perceiving. And then you get this sort of four-letter personality type. Um, yeah. I wonder, talk to me about the matching then and where that comes yeah. from, because I'm assuming it's not, uh, it's certainly not a one-to-one. I can tell you, I, you know, recently tried to date an ENFP like myself and that didn't go, you know, it's like a hot mess. Nobody's in charge of anything. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh my God. That must've been quite fun and um, quite it was chaotic. <laughs> extremely fun and complete chaos all the time. Yeah. Like, yes, yes. yes oh, no one ever wants funny. to make it, you know, you can imagine. So it's yeah. not a, so I, I would imagine that a lot has gone into creating that algorithm around the matching, right? Yes, um, exactly. And actually ENFPs um, are one of the types that are most likely to find a relationship on our app. It's like mm. the most kind of common couple that we see ENFP and INTJ. And it's it's kind of funny because it's this almost like magical couple that like lots of people in the personality type world talk about. Um, and then actually now we have the data and it is the couple that we see get together the most. Huh. Um, I know actually quite a lot of ENFP, INTJ couples. so. Um, okay, yeah, good so to know. The, <laughs> yeah, the bigger picture concept is to match couples who have some similarities so they're on the same wavelength, they understand each other, and they have great conversations on a daily basis. But then a certain amount of differences to create that spark and that sense of intrigue. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's kind of fun, exciting, and there's that chemistry because I think sometimes when we talk about personality compatibility, um, people assume that it's like it, it's not that kind of fun chemistry aspect as well, but it mm -hmm. definitely is. It's kind of all of it packaged up. It's kind of great too because it gives you an immediate conversation starter. I yes. would imagine. Yeah, it's that's a really good point. And we have a super, super high um like match to messaging conversion ratio. It's like close to 10 times higher than a typical dating app. Um, because yeah, I mean, like, I guess firstly, there's the intention side of things. People sign up, they take a personality test. Um, the vast, vast majority, we did a survey about this the other day are looking for a long-term relationship, which, you know, you'd imagine, right? Um, and then the second part of that is, yeah, there is this kind of more fun, interesting aspect to it that makes it easier to start a conversation. And you see this in people's bios on the app as well. They're like, oh, this is, I'm this personality type. This is really accurate. Or, oh, th this has really intrigued me. And it's, yeah, a good, good starting point to chat, really. And then the, the rest of the mechanics of the app are pretty standard dating app, right? Like you swipe or you, I mean, how does, how does kind of the rest of the app work? Compared yes, to what exactly. People are so the with. kind of the matching um, is similar to kind of, I guess, like most dating apps. Um, we have a personality hub. Um, which is again kind of where we're different, where we do daily polls, um, like, you know, questions, do you believe in love at first sight? Um, you know, do you usually make the first move, that kind of thing? We break the answers down by personality type. So 
say you're chatting to like an INTJ on the app, you can kind of see how INTJs answer all these questions. Hmm. Um, and we have like a compatibility calculator as well, which is kind of, I guess, like the start of the route we want to go down more in the future where um, you can kind of, you, you have your matches and you also have famous people as well if you want to see your compatibility with famous people. Um, and then there's a kind of like detailed breakdown of different aspects of compatibility, say like how you would likely interact on a daily basis, the type of connection you'd likely have, um, like sexual chemistry, all these kind of things. Um, because I guess like, yeah, where we kind of want to go with it more in the future is, I guess, really expand that kind of self-awareness, self-understanding part, and then the understanding of the other person as well. Right. Can you just create a hub called how to choose a restaurant? Like, I feel like that's where it all breaks down. How to choose yeah, a restaurant. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just have like a spinner and just be like, right, yeah, let's just yeah, go just, Who Who is going to be in charge of choosing the restaurant yeah. is all I want to know. Um, you are, it looks like seed stage so far, right? Raised a seed round in 2021. What, um, how many, like, what can you tell us about your traction so far? Users, who they are, you know, how it's been going. You were written up in Forbes almost immediately, which is great. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so in terms of traction, um, we now have like hundreds of thousands of users, um, which is, yeah, super exciting. Um, yeah, we, we do like a lot with like journalists and the press. So yeah, as you mentioned, um, we're featured in Forbes as the next big thing in dating. Um, we were the youngest company last year to be named um, by Fast Company as a top tech startup to watch globally. Um, and yeah, we're like, yeah, featured a lot really in the press, like Vice, Mashable, Huffington Post, Daily Mail, all kinds of publications um, because we do a lot on the kind of like relationship expert side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've actually like started now commenting more on like celebrity compatibility. So um, my sister's uh, last time she did a column, a weekly column about Love Island. I don't know if it's as big in the US as, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And we're doing like a lot on that now because it's restarted. We're not doing like a weekly column. We're kind of taking a slightly different approach, but um. Yeah, so a lot of traction there. And we've helped, yeah, thousands and thousands of people now find relationships, um, have like a lot of so synced marriages. I'd say it's about probably about 20 that we know of. Um, Already? And probably wow. many, many more. We actually found out about a marriage on TikTok last week, um, which was kind of crazy. Just someone commented on a TikTok post and said, by the way, I downloaded your app a year ago and I'm now married to my partner who I met on it. Oh, that yeah. is so great. Okay. So now talk to what is it like to go from investment banking to mm-hmm. now I'm helping people get married? I mean, this must just be like yeah. <laughs> a pretty fascinating journey overall. Yes. Yeah. Definitely fascinating. Um, and like, to be honest, there isn't anything I would rather be doing right now. Like, I just love what we do and it is just so fulfilling. And you know, sometimes if I'm having a bad day, I'll be like, but we've helped like loads of people, you know, find their life partner. Um, and like, you know, even if you help just two people get together, like that actually changes their lives. If, you know, yeah. someone that they stay with long term and they really kind of, I guess, you know, just have a great relationship. Um, so yeah, it's definitely been interesting. I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that I started um, in investment banking. That was great. 
in terms of learning about you know businesses and financial modeling and all these things that definitely come in handy now um, with a startup. Um, but yeah, I feel like, yeah, very happy with the kind of path that um, I've gone down really. And then talk to me about, as long as we're talking about biz, uh, investment and business, um, how do you make money? Pretty standard membership model? Yes. So yeah, exactly. Um, like a subscription package, mm -hmm. um, like similar-ish features to probably um, ones that you've seen, kind of, you know, paying to see who's liked you, travel mode. Um, we have like a golden message. So if you want to send a message to someone that you haven't yet matched with, um, if you pay for the membership package, you can send one golden message a day, um, kind of like profile boosts, um, that kind of thing. So yeah, the golden message is like a more thoughtful kind of mega like, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. actually send a message with it. So it kind of gets more of um, people's personality across. Um, and yeah, I mean, like that is, I would say like one of the great things about dating apps is they, you know, monetization has definitely been worked out. There's quite a lot of, I guess, maybe like social apps that struggle to monetize. Um, but, you know, people definitely do pay for pay for love and they yeah, pay for like hookups and short term relationships as well in a kind of like different way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that the more data you get, the more helpful mm -hmm. it is to the algorithm. Like what? I mean, it, it is pretty like I will confess that I sent it to friends who are in relationships because I was like, dude, you have to do this. Like we have to know our personality types. Do you does that help you or hurt you? Was that a bad thing? Should I not do that again? No, no, that's, yeah, that's completely fine. Or does it, um, you know, it helps because you get more data or? Yeah, I mean, I guess the data set that we use at the moment is when we have success stories. So when yep. people leave the app because they found their partner and, you know, we ask them um, what the personality type of their partner that they met on the app is. And then we also have quite a lot of people that write in or like, you know, even like I said on TikTok, just message on social media. Um, and then we always ask them, you know, what is the, personality type of your partner that you met um so that's the kind of main data set that we use now um and then like going forwards you know we don't yet have say like a data scientist but going forwards there's a lot of interesting things we can do i guess like pre-success story that could increase people's chances as well what have you found do you have like high level i mean i think it's so interesting that for example you said the enfp and what was the intj is yeah. really successful. Have any other kind of insights like that that you found about personality types and how they mesh or don't or yes. don't? What's the biggest disaster? Yes, yeah, the biggest disaster. Yeah, I mean, any <laughs> any personality type pairing can work, and I always, you know, want to be careful to say this. Yes. Never would say to someone this is not going to work because it, it's simply not true. It's just that some pairings will, you know, require a bit more effort, or and you know, obviously, different people like different things as well. Um, so I think the kind of the biggest learning um, from like a personality compatibilities perspective is, um, and it's something that we had the theory of in the beginning and the data has proved this, um, is that you tend to see like intuitives matching with intuitives or I guess pairing up with intuitives and then senses pairing up with senses. So that's the second letter N or S. Mm -hmm. um, and that... Yeah, that's something we expected because they just kind of like tend to be more um, like on the same wavelength in terms of like daily conversations. Um, there are like, you know, advantages to sensor intuitive pairings as well. But that's, I guess, probably the biggest learning um, mm. in the data. 
or it's just it's very consistent it sounds like yes yeah yeah exactly it is how sticky are dating apps like do people bounce around once they find one i mean you know you're it's a a crowded world out there when it Mm -hmm. comes to options for dating this is a great differentiator but i also wonder how you continue to sort of keep and engage new people yeah so i say it kind of depends on um the type of dating app so if you've got dating apps that are more focused on like short-term relationships more kind of hookups Mm -hmm. um then you do have those kind of repeat users that will use it and then they might not use it for a couple of weeks and then they'll use it you know in like a couple of months say um and you know because they're not getting into a long-term relationship they're just using it repeatedly essentially um and then you have a kind of like the other end of the spectrum where um people are actually finding long-term relationships potentially lifelong relationships on um your dating app and this is actually really good in a different way because this is something that, you know, quite a few investors brought up when we were raising our funding round. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, but if you, you know, if your matching algorithm is so great, then you'll lose You'll put yourself people. out of business, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But yep. it really, it doesn't happen like that because those success stories are literally like the best adverts for the app that you could ever imagine. Um, you know, imagine like how often you ask couples how they met to like, you know, when you're in a relationship, how much you talk about it yourself. Um, and it's, you know, like literally, it, and it, I guess it has the added benefit of having this interesting talking point. So we've talked to our success stories about this and they say that, you know, they bring it up at dinner parties and things like that. And then people at dinner parties are doing the test around the table because they want to know right. their personality type. Um, so yeah, there are kind of like, different ways that I guess you can have or can kind of grow. And if you don't have repeat users as such, um, then, you know, that kind of word of mouth from people telling their friends how they met is really, really powerful. And we see this with press as well, actually, when there's a press article about a success story, we see like a lot of downloads um, because people just like to actually see real people and hear their stories yeah there's well there's just a built-in kind of easy virality around like everybody you know everybody can grasp this immediately everybody's somewhat familiar although i keep saying everybody and i wonder about your demographics because i could imagine like a lot of us do this at work i could imagine you might skew even a little older than a bumble or a tinder which is very maybe millennial focused but maybe i'm wrong yeah, I mean, that was the exact theory that we had, um, yeah. but it actually hasn't really worked out like that. Um, we thought the exact same thing, you know, lots of um, people take the test through work. And so you'd think it would kind of be, you know, lots of, say, like professionals um, that have found out about it, then become interested. Um, but actually, it's kind of, it's like quite a Gen Z audience. Hmm. Um and I think one of the reasons for this is that it's like a big thing on social media. Um, so, you know, totally. it's not, not unusual for a personality type like TikTok video to get, say, like, you know, a million or sometimes millions of views. Um, and particularly during lockdown, like personality type Instagram really blew up. So I think that has kind of encouraged this, I guess, like slightly younger 
audience. Um, and there are also probably people who spend like more time on Reddit and that kind of thing. It's interesting too, because although it is not that, astrology has been having a big moment. Like, I think yeah. that there's sort of like, I think everyone's doing this right now. Like a lot of people, especially Gen Z's are like, really into this particular type of examination and it feels yeah. a little bit like that like the way that you've it's it's quite clever i think the presentation and the writing and how you know kind of excited it is about your personality type that it's got that kind of vibe um with yes. more science behind it more science but a hundred percent it's that kind of self-reflection vibe and that is very much a structural trend like it kind mm -hmm. of ties in with you know, therapy becoming a bigger thing over the past, say, like five years. And um, like the way I think about this is using like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, so like, you know, at the bottom, you've got like food, water, shelter, that kind of thing. And then as you kind of like go up, it goes to like all these different things, self-esteem. And then like the top of the pyramid is self-actualization. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, like essentially reaching your true potential. And a lot of people use like frameworks to help them understand themselves. And that's kind of where personality tests come in. Um, so I think like, I do kind of think we're just at the start of that really. And that it's just going to like keep growing and growing. When you look at data of how it's kind of trended over the past few years, it does have that like hockey stick growth curve. Yeah. Um, you know, like people are just going to come more and more kind of, I guess, like, wanting to be self-aware and going down that route as we go on well then great timing the app is called so synced with no e s y n c d and you can find it at so synced.com uh jessica is the co-founder along with your sister luella which by the way we didn't even get into but that is adorable yeah i it's, love it's, it yeah it's great fun actually Back oh that's her. wonderful um well congratulations and i'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the future, because thank I can you. tell you, I'm already telling all my friends. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for having me. Congrats. Thanks for the time. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We have an awesome interview coming tomorrow about a potential calamity event coming for startups later this year. I'm not trying to bring you down. I'm just saying you might want to listen. So we'll see you then. We'll also have some quick news too. stay tuned. Have a great rest of your day.